Good morning. Turn in your Bible, please, to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. I mentioned last week that Daniel is divided up into two very distinct sections. The first part, chapters 1 to 6, are biography or history. The second part consists of apocalyptic visions. Last week, the vision was about four bizarre-looking beasts coming up out of a turbulent sea. And we talked about the difficult interpretive issues with that vision. The vision for this morning is much simpler, if you know the history, and much less controversial. Let's read about it in verses 1 to 12. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam, and in the vision I was beside the Uli Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west, and the north, and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. One of them, from one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did. The truth was thrown to the ground. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would guide our thinking this morning as we study your word. Give everyone the discernment to know whether I am interpreting and applying accurately, and give all of us the boldness and the power to put your word into action in our lives. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me summarize this vision in a nutshell. It was the third year of Belshazzar's reign, sometime in the 540s B.C. Daniel is either physically in the city of Susa, which is in modern-day Iran, some 200 miles from Babylon, or he sees himself in Susa in his vision. 
He is standing by a canal when he sees a vision of a ram with two horns, one horn longer than the other. This ram charged west, north, and south, and nothing could stop it. Suddenly a goat appeared from the west, with a prominent horn between its eyes. The goat charged the ram in great rage, shattering the ram's two horns, knocked it to the ground, and trampled on it. So the goat became very great. But at the height of its power, its large horn was broken off and replaced with four horns. Out of those four horns came a horn which started out small, but grew up. It trampled on the starry host of heavens, took away the daily sacrifice, and threw down the sanctuary of the temple. So what in the world does all this mean? Well, as I said earlier, if you know the historical background behind all this, the interpretation is pretty simple and not very controversial. We don't have to guess because chapter 8 interprets it for us. I hope this doesn't get too confusing, but I'm going to jump back and forth between the vision in verses 1 to 14 and the interpretation in verses 15 to 26. So verse 3 says, I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns, standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. Now, we don't have to guess what this ram represents. Verse 20 says, The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. Now, notice that there's just one ram, that is, one empire. But that empire is, com is a combined empire of Media and Persia, sometimes called the Medo-Persian Empire. The longer horn probably represents the fact that Persia was the dominant power in this united empire. Why is Persia represented by a ram? Well, maybe because according to ancient records, when the king of Persia was at the head of his army, he didn't wear a crown. He wore the head of a ram. When verse 4 says that the ram charged toward the west and the north and the south and that no animal could stand against it, we know from history that Persia expanded toward Turkey and Greece to the west, toward Egypt to the south, and toward Russia to the north, and nothing could stand in its way until a goat comes along. Verses 5 to 8 tell of a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes which furiously attacks the ram, shattering its two horns and trampling it. Verse 21 tells us that the shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. As early as the first century AD, it has been recognized that this large horn is none other than Alexander the Great, who ruled from 336 to 323 BC. Before Alexander the Great, what we know of today as Greece was just a bunch of loosely allied or sometimes opposing city-states. In other words, each city was its own independent state with its own government. These city-states had been warring with Persia off and on for a long time when Philip of Macedon united these city-states for the first time. Now, Macedon was the Greek province where Thessalonica and Philippi were. When Philip was assassinated, 
His son Alexander took control and led, the, led Greece in a massive blitzkrieg or lightning war against Persia. Verse 5 describes it, saying, As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. Now, remember, these are apocalyptic visions, which are highly symbolic. So when it says that the goat crossed the whole earth, that doesn't mean Alexander the Great went on to conquer India, China, North America, and Europe. It's hyperbole or overstatement to make a point that his conquests were truly extensive, all the way from Greece to the border of India. And when verse 5 says that he crossed the whole earth without touching the ground, this doesn't mean he attacked Persia with F-35 fighters or something, or, or even hot air balloons. Now, as silly as that may sound, some interpretations of the book of Revelation almost get that silly. No, it means that Alexander's attack was remarkably rapid. In only a few years, he overthrew the most powerful empire in the world and even expanded that empire. Alexander died unexpectedly in 323 BC at the young age of 33, and his kingdom was eventually divided up among his four generals. Verse 22 says, The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, but will not have the same power. Now, although those four horns, or generals, Lysimachus, Cassander, Ptolemy, and Seleucus, fought with each other in power struggles, none of them ever had the same power as Alexander. Back up in verses 9 and 10, the text says, out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew up until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to earth and trampled on them. As I said, one of Alexander's four generals was named Seleucus, and one of his descendants was a guy named Antiochus IV also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. We've talked about him before. His father and he took over the beautiful land, in other words, Israel, in 198 BC. Speaking of Antiochus' kingdom, verse 10 says, it grew until it reached the host of heavens and threw some of the starry host down to earth, trampled on them. Now, the idea of the host of heavens or a starry host almost always refers to angels. So most scholars seem to think this is a reference to some kind of cosmic battle in heaven. But in the interpretation section, verse 24 talks about how Antiochus destroys the holy people of God. So in this case, I think the host of heaven refers to God's people on earth and is a reference to the trampling by Antiochus of God's righteous priests and others who stood firm for God. Antiochus removed those who stood for God and replaced them with those who would promote Hellenistic culture or Greek agenda. You see, the times of Antiochus' epiphanies were remarkably similar to our own times in some respects. At that time, the in-thing was Greek culture. Obscene plays, pornographic literature, athletic events in the nude, and even the worship of Greek gods. And the Jewish people responded to this in various ways. Some Jews. I'll call them pagan Jews, just completely cast off their Jewish heritage and the law of Moses 
and openly practiced and promoted Greek culture and worshiped the Greek gods. Other Jews, I'll call them liberal Jews, were like cultural Christians today who wanted to reinterpret the Bible to make it fit their culture. They were tolerant of anti-biblical behaviors and even practiced some of those behaviors themselves. Even some of the Jewish priests, like Jason or Menelaus, promoted Greek culture and religion. Then there were conservative Jews, like the Maccabees, who believed in the Law of Moses and refused to compromise to pagan Greek culture, values, and religion. They held true to the God of Israel, and many of them were persecuted mercilessly for their faith, even being tortured to death. Verse 11 refers to Antiochus Epiphanes when it says, He took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord, and his sanctuary was thrown down. Antiochus outlawed sacrifices to God in the temple. In fact, he had a big pig sacrificed to Zeus in the holy place of the temple. The sanctuary was thrown down in the sense that it was completely ransacked and desecrated. In chapters 11 and 12, Daniel will call this the abomination that causes desolation, or just the abomination of desolation. Verse 24 elaborates on this, saying that he will cause astounding devastation and will destroy the holy people. The astounding devastation may refer in part to the fact that Antiochus IV is reported to have slaughtered 40,000 Jews and sold 40,000 more into slavery. He was particularly harsh on the holy people or people of God, even torturing them to death. Verse 25 says, He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider, consider himself superior. That's actually an understatement. Antiochus had coins minted with his image and the inscription, God manifest, as if he was God manifest in the flesh. When Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2.4 that the man of lawlessness will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, I suspect Paul has Daniel 8 in mind. Paul, of course, knows full well that Daniel 8 is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. But Paul, like Jesus, is saying that Antiochus Epiphanes is foreshadowing an even worse ruler yet to come in the future. A ruler John will call the Antichrist. Verse 25 also says, he will destroy many. Another understatement. As I said earlier, he is reported to have slaughtered 40,000 Jews. Finally, verse 25 says he will be destroyed not by human power. In other words, Antiochus did not die as a warrior in battle or by human power. He just got sick and died. Similarly, Paul says that the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, will not die by human power, but will be destroyed by Jesus himself. So Antichrist, or so Antiochus dies. Is that the end of the story? Nope. Verse 13 is about an angel that asked, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. Another angel answers in verse 14, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. 
uh, events leading up to the reconsecration or rededication of the temple were beginning to take place even as Antiochus lay on his deathbed. Word came to him of the remarkable victories, almost supernatural victories, that the Jewish Maccabees were having over the armies of Antiochus. Eventually, Judas Maccabeus would restore and rededicate the temple. 2,300 evenings and mornings could mean 2,300 days or six years. Or some take it to mean 1,150 morning sacrifices and 1,150 evening sacrifices for a total of three years and two months. Three years is about the time it took from when Antiochus Epiphanes began his reign of terror to when the temple was liberated, cleansed, and rededicated. No one in, in Daniel's time, of course, could possibly have understood what the 2300 meant, but they would understand that the intense persecution would not go on forever. It was for a limited period of time. So what does all this have to do with us today? Well, I've read that there are some who think that this chapter is entirely about a future Antichrist and nothing about Persia, Greece, or Antiochus. I disagree. Chapter 8 corresponds so perfectly with ancient history that to say it has nothing to do with history is to impose an agenda on the biblical text. In other words, it's reading into the text rather than reading from it. There are others, however, who think this is entirely about ancient history and has nothing to do with the future. I'm skeptical about that view, too. Aside from the fact that verses 17 and 19 say it relates to the time of the end, Jesus knew full well about the abomination of desolation in Daniel 8.13 and Daniel chapters 11 and 12, and yet Jesus spoke of that as being future. Jesus seems to be saying that this abomination of desolation is a foreshadowing of a similar abomination that will happen in the future. So many scholars believe, and I agree with them, that Daniel 8 is about Persia, Greece, and Antiochus, but that this story is a foreshadowing of things to come that were still future even in Jesus' time, the destruction of the temple in AD 70, and a future desolator, a small horn, as Daniel calls it, a man of lawlessness, as Paul calls him, the Antichrist, as John calls him. So what lessons do we learn from this passage? Well, the first one is the same lesson we get from every chapter in Daniel. That is that despite outward circumstances or appearances, God is sovereign over the affairs of people and nations. In the end, God wins, and the people of God win with him. Second, in the meantime, the battle with evil is real. As I said last week, Christians should never be naive about the extent and pervasiveness of evil in this world. It will continue and even get worse until Jesus comes back. So when you face trials, hardships, and tribulation, don't be surprised. In 1 Peter 4.12, Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Believe me, the godly Jews in Antiochus' time really did face a fiery ordeal. So fiery, in fact, that it's too terrible to talk about with kids present. When we face fiery trials, we should not think something strange is happening to us. Jesus warned us 
that in this world we would have tribulation. My last lesson this morning is a bit of a tangent based more on Jewish history of the time than on the text of Daniel itself. But my final lesson is that friendship with the world is enmity against God, as James 4.4 says. Many Jews in the days of Antiochus IV had become friends with the world because it was the popular and glamorous and safe thing to do. They ignored or reinterpreted the law of Moses and adopted Greek culture and religion. The people I call cultural Christians do the same today. They call themselves Christians, but their lives and social views are often indistinguishable from their non-Christian friends. Putting culture above God is nothing new. It went on in Daniel's day. It went on in the days of Antiochus. And it goes on in our time as well. In the days of Daniel and Antiochus, however, being faithful to God could cost your life. Similarly, in some parts of the world today, being faithful to God could cost your life. Fortunately, in America, we are not there yet, but we are headed in that direction. So how about us? Will we remain faithful to God in the face of cultural pressures and tribulation? So if I were to summarize one big lesson for today in one long sentence, it would be this. Remain faithful to God regardless of the circumstances. And always remember that regardless of circumstances or appearances, God is sovereign over the affairs of people and nations. And in the end, God wins and we with him. Let's pray. Lord, help us to judge our culture in light of your word and not the other way around. And help us to be faithful to you regardless of the circumstances. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.